was an amazing weekend. I got to go again this year and would echo everything that Sullivan said, including I had no idea what I was doing when I got there, and yet we were somehow God used us to help folks. So it was a pretty amazing weekend. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 35 through 38 this morning as we continue our study in the works uh, of Jesus. In November of 1939, uh, Stalin saw a problem with his defenses in the western part of the Soviet Union, uh, and he, he found that there was a pathway that the German army could actually take through southern Finland to attack Stalingrad. And so, in a really in a defensive move in his mind, he sent uh, 465,000 soldiers and over 1,000 aircraft to attack and control the southern half of Finland. Uh, the attack took place in November of 1939, and the Soviets were so sure that it was going to be a cakewalk that literally the soldiers who went and, and attacked uh, did so in their summer uniforms, uh, despite the onset of the Scandinavian winter. It was simply assumed uh, that there would be no outdoor activity after a few days when they crushed an army that was inferior in number by 10 to 1, and also inferior in equipment and weaponry and, uh, and supposedly in skill. Uh, the, that, that battle, that uh, objective was supposed to take a few days. Uh, and yet entire divisions in the Russian army were lost, were annihilated. Uh, entire groups lost their way and were eventually bogged down in, uh, in the cold winter. And it took massive reinforcements and over three months to achieve a very simple military objective. It was not until the end of March, at the loss of tens of thousands of lives on both sides, uh, that the Finns capitulated that part of their country. What was the reason for this disaster? Why did it occur? Well, put very simply, if you know anything about history, you know anything about Soviet history, you know anything about Joseph Stalin, you know that he was a bloodthirsty man. You also know that he was a paranoid man, that he assumed that people around him who, with whom he shared power would eventually turn on him and destroy him. And so Stalin had systematically murdered all of his top generals and even his second-tier and third-tier commanders. And he sent an army into Finland that had all the equipment it needed, had, had all the manpower and then some it needed, but with no leadership. And Stalin's mistake cost thousands and thousands lives of his shoulders, but it also showed one thing to history again for probably about the hundredth time or so, and it's simply this. People who are in authority typically have one overriding goal and objective above all other things, and that is to stay in authority, to use their power and their ability to actually gain more authority. I think you can see that in our country, not so much uh, in a violent way, but even in a civil way. Uh, it has often been said that there are people in authority who make it their chief aim to stay there and not necessarily their chief aim to help their constituency. That's what most people do when they have authority at their fingertips. But Jesus has an odd combination. Jesus came with all authority, but he also had compassion. Matthew chapter 9 verses 35 through 38, hear the word of God. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the reading of God's holy, perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to uh, worship you not only with our hearts and our soul and our singing, our praise, our prayers, our petitions. Father, we also come to worship you with our minds, with our intellects. Father, it's just as important that we know your truth, that we feel your presence in our lives. So, Father, we ask that you would teach us through this word this morning. Father, you know my heart, you know my condition. We're not here to hear my words and my thoughts. Lord, we need your eternal truth in our lives, and we just ask that you would give it to us. Father, I pray that you would quiet and still our hearts, that you would allow us to focus on the Lord Jesus and what he has to say to his people this morning. Forgive me for my sins. Please don't let me stand in the way of your teaching your people today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence so that you'll know where we're headed this morning. It's very simply this. Disciples must follow Jesus into the world. That's his calling. We follow him into the world teaching, proclaiming, and healing in his name. So if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, you know your marching orders. I know my marching orders. But what does it mean to actually follow him into this ministry of compassion, this ministry of care for others? And how does God use his authority in your life and in my life to accomplish that end to the greater good that others would know him. That's what we want to kind of wrestle with and think through this morning in this passage. We're going to do it by looking at three three ways this morning. First, we're going to consider the work, the activity of Jesus. What was he doing? How was he spending his time? The second thing we're going to look at is the emotion of Jesus. What was his attitude? Not only what did he do, but, but what was in his heart as he, as he was involved in his earthly ministry. And then lastly, we want to look at the, the very last verse where Jesus offers some observations uh, about this ongoing ministry of compassion. Well, let's start with the work of Jesus. In verse 35, it's laid out pretty clearly for us. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Teaching, proclamation, and healing. Teaching simply means giving instruction. It's passing on knowledge and insight uh, that you have to someone else, whether it's in a classroom setting where you're maybe some of you, in fact, I know some of you are officially teachers in this school district or, or that school district, and you spend your days passing on information to your students and then holding them accountable to learn it and understand it via quizzes and tests and exercises and those sorts of things, that Jesus is spending his time teaching. Why? Because the information is important. You can't be a Christian and follow Jesus effectively without knowing what he has to say about you, what, knowing what he has to say about this world, not knowing what he has to say about our salvation and our relationship with him. And Jesus does a very loving thing to the people in his generation. He teaches them. He shares the truth with them. 
He studies alongside them and helps them understand the deeper things of Scripture. You think about what we offer at Green Tree on Sunday morning, in particular for our children, but also for adult classes. We spend time teaching. We're doing that right now in the, in the preaching of the Word. There is a passing along of, of information. There's a passing along of truth. Part of the work of Jesus is to teach what God has to say. And as disciples, we're responsible to join him in that teaching ministry. But there's another word that Matthew uses in this text, and it's a, it's a nuanced word. You could, you could maybe think it's a bit synonymous. Teaching and proclamation are kind of the same thing. But there's a very distinct difference that we need to understand, especially in our day and age, where teaching is giving instruction, teaching is passing on knowledge, proclaiming or proclamation is actually an announcement. It really isn't helping people understand something. It's really helping people grasp the fact that there is an authoritative statement being made. A proclamation in the day of Jesus uh, might go along the lines of what we read about in Luke's gospel. There was a proclamation sent out that all the world was to be uh, was to be inventoried. There was going to be a census taken of the Roman world, and Caesar didn't ask if everybody was okay with that. Caesar didn't throw it out for a vote and say, I think this might be a good idea. How about we do this? Caesar proclaimed, we're going to take a census. We're going to find out how many, how big, how far, how wide. And it was so because Caesar said it, and he had the authority to do that. Jesus comes not only teaching, but he also comes proclaiming. We ought to underline and underscore that word and understand it. Jesus isn't here to suggest one way to God. Jesus isn't here to say, if you you like what I have to say, maybe you might want to consider it. Jesus comes proclaiming the truth. If you remember, we went back uh, when we studied in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, or this is true, why? Because I say it. (laughs) Really? Well, who are you? Well, I am God in the flesh. And therefore, my authority is an authority to proclaim the truth of God. So when I say to you on a Sunday morning uh, that that I want to proclaim something and I share with you something out of Scripture, what I'm doing is saying it's not my authority. I'm not here telling you this, that it's true because I say it's true. I'm telling you that it's true because Jesus has said it's true. So my ministry of proclamation is not the same as Jesus. I simply point to the one who is much, much, much greater than me. But Jesus comes proclaiming, and therein lies the rub. Because we don't really like authority that much, do we? We don't like anybody telling us what to do, especially as Americans. Uh, One of the things we hold at highest value is individual rights. In fact, there's constantly battles, are there not, in our courts on on a daily basis between individual rights and collective good? Why is that? Because we are adamant about doing things the way we want to do them, and nobody can tell us how to do them differently. This is not just an American phenomenon. Listen to Psalm chapter 2 where the psalmist steps back and he looks at the world around him. And he looks at the authorities and the powers that be. And here's his observation. It actually starts out in the form of a question. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then he makes a statement. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
for century after century after century after millennia after millennia, the world has said, you can't tell me how to do things. I want to do things my way. And yet Jesus comes and proclaims what he proclaims to them, the gospel of the kingdom. What is God's proclamation? What is his authoritative proclamation? It's that good news has come. Is that there's hope for mankind. And it's not found in man's ability or man's power to, to better ourselves, but rather it's found in the mercy and the grace of God. Think about how Jesus is using his authority here. He doesn't mince words, friends. If, if you read the Gospels clearly, you will see Jesus make truth statement after truth statement after truth statement. And you may reject all of them. You may say, I don't want anything to do with them. But what you will also find, if you look clearly, is that everything that Jesus says is about the glory of God and the good of mankind, the salvation of mankind. Jesus says, I have authority to offer you grace and mercy, and so that's what I've come to proclaim. But not only does Jesus come teaching, proclaiming, but he also backs up that teaching and that proclamation by what? By healing. And as he came, he taught in their synagogues, proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus says, how do you know you can trust me that I'm the truth? How do you know that, that when I say that I've come to bring grace and mercy, that, that you can understand that that's what God is really all about, and you see that in his healing ministry. You see him in meeting the physical and spiritual and emotional needs of the people around him. And ultimately, we see Jesus' healing power at the cross. This sermon series on, on, the, on the authority of Jesus and the works of Jesus goes right through Easter, right through the resurrection, because we see God over and over again using his authority not to crush mankind, but to crush sin and death and to offer us salvation and grace. And so Jesus' words were words of welcome. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll, I'll care for you. I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Truly I say to you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All these statements Jesus said are embedded in his grace and in his mercy. And so his actions mirrored his words as he came to care for those. I said the physical, the spiritual, emotional needs. That's the work of Jesus in this passage. In one little verse, we see this all-encompassing picture of the effort and the energy that Jesus spent on mankind. There's also an emotional side to Jesus. Look at verse 36 with me, if you would. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Think about that word compassion for just a moment. Compassion is, is actually uh, empathy, but it's also an empathy that leads to an act of relief. Uh, it leads you to do something. When you have compassion on someone, it's not just a feeling. It's not just a thought. You may have a friend that went through a hard time this last week, and you may have thought, gosh, I feel so bad for that. I'm so sorry that happened to so-and-so. But that's not compassion. Compassion is actually going and doing something about that person's condition. And so Jesus feels compassion when he looks at the crowds, which led me to ask a kind of a personal question of application as I was reading this text, and it's simply this. What do I see when I see the crowds? 
What do I see when I interact with the people in my community? What do I see before me on a daily basis? And what do you see in front of you if you're a disciple of Jesus? And people come and go in our lives. And we, we know that we live in a broken world. And we know that people are hurting. And oftentimes people come to us and express that disappointment or anxiety. How do I feel? How do I respond when I see the crowds? Do I see an opportunity to help? Do we see the chance to step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus? I think that was part of the story this morning in Homes of Hope. Or rather, do we see uh, interruption? Do we see uh, something that's a bit of an annoyance or an aggravation? Maybe it's not that. Maybe, maybe we'd like to help, but actually what we feel is being overwhelmed or, or we feel hopeless. We look at a, a circumstance or a situation in our society and say, well, I can't do anything at all about that big picture problem. And we just stop dead in our tracks because we don't feel that we can accomplish much of anything. So why bother trying? And yet we see Jesus here. It tells us what he did first, but then it tells us why he did it. Because he had compassion. Why did Jesus roll up his sleeves, so to speak, and get to work with the proclamation and teaching and healing? It's because he looked and he saw people that were completely overwhelmed by life's activities by the oppression that it comes from living in a broken world. So Jesus' heart matches Jesus' hands. They go together. But then he offers an observation to his disciples, and he shares with them some thoughts uh, about this world. And after he saw the crowds helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he says to his disciples in verse 37 of verse 38, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. The first part of that observation is that people in general are overwhelmed by the impact of living in a sinful world. He looked at them and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. You think about sheep for a second if the shepherd isn't around. We don't live in an agrarian society anymore. I don't have a bunch of sheep in my backyard, but, I, but I've looked into this just a little bit uh, and, and uh, done some research on it. And if there isn't a shepherd around, sheep are easily spooked. They're easily scared. And when they get scared, they run aimlessly until they're completely exhausted. And once they're completely exhausted, they're what? They're easy prey for the predators. That's how sheep react when they're broken, when they're fearful, when they're anxious, when there's no one caring for them. They're easily frightened. They run aimlessly to exhaustion, going this way and that not knowing where to turn, not knowing where to get help, and eventually they become defenseless prey. Sounds a lot like our lives sometimes, doesn't it? I think about just this last week at Green Tree Community Church and just the things about which I'm aware. And I'm certainly aware of only a small portion of all the things that are going on in, in all of our lives. But this week we've had members of our church have to deal with death in their families. This week we've had people have to deal with serious disappointment in the circumstances of their lives. Some have wrestled with marriages that are falling apart, and there doesn't seem to be anything they can do to stop the problem. Some have struggled to care for parents, or some as children have struggled to watch their parents go through hard and difficult moments, whether it was job-related or serious illness. It feels almost like without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And I take great thankfulness. I take great um, joy in the fact that Jesus knows our circumstances. 
that Jesus does say, you know, it really isn't all that bad. Come on. Look on the bright side of life, right? Okay. Just, you know, choose to be happy. Choose to kind of ignore the tough things and just kind of center in on those moments. They're few and far between that make you happy. You know, Jesus comes and says, this really is a broken place. And his heart goes out to us because he knows that without a shepherd, we are lost. But also notice in this observation that what Jesus is saying is that saving the, these, these lost, worn out, harassed and helpless sheep is really a worthy endeavor in the eyes of God. You see, he looks out and not only does he have this emotional connection, but then he turns to his disciples and he says something really interesting. He says the harvest is plentiful. He says if you look around you guys, you'll see that no matter which way you turn, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to bring the life-bearing truth of the gospel into the lives of the people around us. The question is not, is there opportunity? There's opportunity everywhere. The question is, what will we do with the opportunity? God wants to bring in the harvest. And when he looks at the crowds, he does not see aggravation. He does not see something that he has to kind of work at that he doesn't really care for. Rather, he sees objects of his affection. He wants to bring in the lost and the broken. If you've, if you've ever been around a farmer at harvest time, uh, you can judge their emotions based on what they see in their field. If it's been a dry, hot summer and they needed rain to come at the right time and it didn't, there's great disappointment. But if you've ever been around a farmer that, that's gone out and looked at their field and, and it's been the perfect year, it's been the perfect growing year and everything's good to go, they can't help but smile. They don't mind the work. They, they don't care about the effort and energy. They're going to have to work from before sunup to after the sun goes down to make sure they get the crops in on time, but they don't care because they're so excited about the opportunity to bring them in. I grow tomatoes every once in a while, and I get really excited when they actually show up red and they're ready to go, and I don't mind having to work long and hard to pick my six or seven tomatoes off the vine and, and bring them into the house. But you can, you can apply that to any work in life. You don't mind doing the hard work if you see the opportunity for the accomplishment that is to follow. When you look at Jesus' heart, he says to, he turns and he says to his 12 buddies, you see how much opportunity there is around us. And this is exactly what God wants to do. Some of you have the struggle that I have from time to time in thinking that we're an annoyance to God. That we're kind of a pain in his side and he's going to help us, but he, he's really more disappointed in us than, than anything else. And he only does it because he's God and that's what God's supposed to do because God's supposed to be kind of nice, right? What we need to see is that Jesus is saying, these are the objects of my affection. I want to bring all of them in, and I want you guys to be part of that. Saving the lost is a worthy endeavor in the eyes of God. But then he gives his disciples an instruction. He instructs his disciples to pray that God would provide for the work of teaching and proclamation and healing. The harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, therefore do what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus calls his disciples to pray. And he doesn't say, you know, think about it every once in a while. You know, when, when, you're, when you're praying, maybe just occasionally remember, it says pray earnestly. In other words, if you're going to pray about one thing, I want you to focus your attention on pray that God would bring the lost in. Pray that there would be other laborers that would go into the field that would participate with me in this endeavor. 
Which leads me to the one question of application this morning. And it's simply this, and I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. How on earth could you possibly pray that prayer and not participate with Jesus? How on earth could I say, here am I, Lord, send everybody else? How on earth could I say, I I see the brokenness of the world. I see the, the pain and the struggle that people are dealing with. I see the hurt. And I know that the gospel is the answer. I know that the mercy and the grace of God through Christ is what will ultimately bring healing and yet sit on the sidelines. You see, Jesus combines his authority and his compassion to do what? To bring salvation. And while Jesus is certainly instructing here, he's certainly teaching his disciples that they should pray, he's also offering them an opportunity. He's offering them an opportunity for partnership, the same opportunity He's offering you and me this morning. Yes, we must pray and pray earnestly, but we must also be part of the provision. We must also be those who gladly go out into the field and work alongside Jesus to bring in the lost. Some of you know I do a little bit of work around the country with different church plants, helping them get started because Green Tree has a, a, a reputation uh, that, that has been earned, actually, as a church planting church. And by the way, uh, as soon as we move into our new building, I've already got figured out how we're going to plant our next church. So I'm excited about that. We'll be talking about that next fall. But I, I, get, to, I get to talk to people from around the country about church planting. And about a month ago, a little, maybe a little over a month ago, I was in Omaha, Nebraska for an afternoon and a morning. I, I literally flew up at noon and was back by noon the next day. But I met, I, I think I've met Green Tree Community Church's twin church. Okay, I finally met a, a, a church that's kind of like us in church planting. When people say to me, Tom, how do you guys plant churches? How, do, how have you done that? What's been your strategy? I say something really profound like, well, uh, we pray about it, and, and then we, we get some people, uh, and we ask them if they, they maybe want to help plant a church, and then we get a, a pastor to kind of help lead them and organize them, uh, and then we kind of get some money together, and, and we give it to them. We say, go plant a church, and we pray for you. And then we ask you to come back and and, and you know, hang out with us every once in a while, tell us how it's going. Like, really, that's your strategy. And I'm like, you know, honestly, truthfully, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> about all we got. Because God seems to raise up people at the right time, and, and we just try to not miss it when God does it. And, and I'm excited to talk to you this fall about what I think is the next one for us not to miss. But these people in Omaha are basically the same way. So I've gone and I, I've sat down with them and I've met with them and I've talked with them. They're just getting started. I'm like, Man, you guys need, God, you need about a year to ramp up. you got to get things organized. you got to get your, you know, decide how you're going to do evangelism, where you're going to meet and worship, and how you're going to interact with your community. And I'm rolling out all this stuff, and the pastor says, well, we're going to start on Easter. I'm like, Easter 2016, I think you could be ready before that. He's like, no, Easter like in, in, in eight weeks, we're going to start. I'm like, well, you've got all these things to think about. You've got a plan and that, and who's assigned for this, and who's assigned for that, and how are you going to work on it? And he stopped me and said, well, Tom, that, those are all important questions, but people need Jesus now. And so what if we kind of mess it up every once in a while? I'm like, yeah, that, that's how Green Tree used to think. Until I got so systematized, maybe I, I worked too hard at it. People need Jesus now. The, the, the sheep are lost. They're harassed. They're helpless. And I praise God for that, that reminder that my friend, young friend gave me, that it's about joining him in the field. It's not about having all the answers. It's not about having everything worked out to, to the absolute 
last, down to the last detail so that we can make sure that we are humanly successful. Jesus invites us into a partnership. Jesus invites us to be compassionate people now. He combines his authority with his compassion in order to save the world. Will we follow? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that Matthew describes your life and your energy and your emotion in the way he does in these, in these four short verses. It's clear that, that you were up before the sun came up and worked late into the night ministering the compassion of God. Father, help us to be a, a, a church that always teaches, that always instructs the next generation in the things of God. Father, help every one of us in this room to be students of your word because we need to know your truth. Father, also give us courage and boldness to proclaim. Lord, we live in a world where people don't want to hear proclamation. They want to hear suggestions. They want to hear options. We're no different. That's what we would like because we'd like to be in control and we'd like to pick. And yet we're not in control, Lord. We're lost without Jesus. So, Lord, give us the boldness to say Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And, Father, use us to bring about healing in people's lives. Use us to, to bring salvation through your word and your spirit. Father, use us to bring care. Father, use us when, when your will so decides to bring physical healing into people's lives. All of this the ministry of compassion. Father, don't let us pray and, and not participate. But help us follow you into the world. That people would experience the grace and the mercy of God that you've brought through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.